welcome to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. Okay, so today we're going to be doing another grab bag type show, jumping from artist to artist, and I think these episodes are important to get a sense for what else was happening in a given year. I'll probably do at least one of these episodes for every year, and this is the one for 1918, and it will close our story for that year. Today we'll be looking at some largely forgotten artists, as well as taking another look at a band that we discussed in our 1917 episode. Before we start, though, I thought I'd take a quick look at some of the other things that were going on in the world in 1918. Women received the right to vote in the UK, but only if they were over 30. The age for men at the time was 21. The United States standardized the time zones and approved the first daylight savings time. I had no idea it was so early. Famous Snoopy rival the Red Baron died in combat during World War I. The Romanovs were executed by the Bolsheviks in Russia as part of the ongoing Russian Civil War. World War I ended on November 11th, and the original Creole Orchestra with Freddie Keppard broke up, having never actually recorded. Alright, but today we're going to be looking at some people who did record, and the first person we're going to be talking about is a guy named Mike Bernard. So Bernard was born in New York City, and he supposedly studied at either the Berlin Conservatory of Music or the Stern Conservatory. Uh, Apparently one of those two can't verify that he was there, and the other one, uh, their records were lost. And apparently he once played for Kaiser Wilhelm II. I say supposedly and apparently because, like a lot of people were discussing in early jazz history, he invented quite a bit of his own biography. So how much we know about him is definitely up for grabs. At 21, he moved back to New York City and heard a fellow European-American musician named Ben Harney, who claimed to have invented ragtime, in much the same way that Nick LaRocca claimed to have invented jazz. At any rate, Bernard decided he wanted to compete with Harney and soon became one of the best ragtime performers. He billed himself as the ragtime king of the world. Um, He had very limited exposure or knowledge of African-American roots of the music or what was going on, Uh, and so his entire career kind of has to be viewed through that lens. He was one of the very first ragtime pianists to be recorded, not that surprisingly, um, beginning for Columbia in 1912. And at his peak, he was hugely famous, particularly as a talented competition pianist. He would get into cutting contests, as they were known, with other ragtime pianists, and he he usually won. From what I was able to find, he was reportedly being paid as much as $10,000 for his Columbia sessions, which would have been a truly staggering amount of money in those days. But by the beginning of the jazz era, he was falling out of favor, although he was still touring in vaudeville. He was actually considered for the original Dixieland Jazz Band after Henry Ragus died, what we talked about last time, but ultimately he didn't get the job. He kept playing until his death in 1936 from complications from a venereal disease. He was quite a well-known philanderer at the age of 61. Anyway, we have this song from him, so we'll hear it now. It's called Blaze Away. Thank you. 
All right, so that was Mike Bernard. Next, we're going to look at an artist that we actually heard from in our 1917 Grab Bag episode, a guy named Earl Fuller. We, I kind of went through his entire biography then, but I found some cool quotes about what he was doing in 1918, so I thought I'd put them here with one of his songs from that year. The August 1918 issue of Edison Ambarola Monthly describes his song Jazzbo Jazz One Step as a real red-hot jazz dance of the most ultra-modern variety. And this might have been the first time that a jazz record was promoted as being hot. Hot is a term for the music that has been extremely prevalent ever since, and this might be where it started. The jacket for the record of the song we're going to hear says the band was organized just at the time the jazz music became popular in New York, and through its playing of jazz music in Rector's Restaurant New York City, Earl Fuller's band became famous. This shows my earlier point that a lot of artists at this point were bandwagon jumpers. They were already recording artists who were just trying to keep themselves relevant by playing this new jazz. The promotional material for the song says, Until you've heard one of Earl Fuller's symphonies in rhythm, you're a novice in the art of appreciating jazz. So let's stop being such novices with his song, Jazz Deluxe. So the next group we're going to talk about, I know almost nothing about. They were called the Savoy Quartet, and they played at the Savoy Hotel in London from 1915 to 1920, and they might be the first integrated band we've heard on this show. Two of the members were from England and two were from the USA, including African-American drummer Alec Williams and European-American tenor and banjoist Joe Wilbur. They were among the very first English jazz bands to be recorded. One of the English members, banjoist Emile Grimshaw, eventually formed a company to produce banjos and guitars, and some of those banjos and guitars are highly valued today. When the Broadway musical star Elsie Janis heard the Savoy Quartet, she commented, I've heard a lot of ragtime bands since I left America, but this is the first time I've heard it done as we do it over there. HMV, their record label, was supposed to release the original Dixieland Jazz Band's Livery Stable Blues in 1917 but a high official in the company blocked the release because of what was described as strange barnyard effects, and he, uh, no one knows exactly why it was blocked, but the likelihood is that he thought it was unacceptable to British consumers. The song we're going to hear now is the closest HMV came to releasing jazz prior to the arrival of the original Dixieland Jazz Band in England, which made the music widely popular there. I mainly want to play this to show how different it is from the same song by the original Dixieland Jazz Band that we heard in the 1917 episode. The song we're going to hear from them is At the Darktown Strutter's Ball. And first we'll listen to that original Dixieland Jazz Band version that I played in our 1917 episode on the band. So let's hear that now, just to remind ourselves what it sounds like. Here is Darktown Strutter's Ball. (laughs) 
now we're going to listen to a version of the same song by this Savoy Quartet, and I think you'll agree with me, they are fairly different. So that's the Savoy Quartet. The next topic I want to talk about is both a band we haven't heard yet and one we have heard. And that's because in our 1917 episode, I started with a group which was unbelievably offensively called Ciro's Club Coon Orchestra. Now, at the time, I said I didn't know much about the band, and that was true, but in the intervening time, I've learned quite a bit more. And it ties into a band that was recording in 1918, so I'm going to take a step back and go over that band again now that I have more information. So the tying figure in the 1917 band, Ciro's Orchestra, and the 1918 band we're going to hear is their pianist, a man named Dan Kildare, who I mentioned in our 1917 episode. He was the Jamaican-born pianist from the orchestra who eventually killed his wife, her sister, and himself. That's about all I knew at the time, but now I've learned a little bit more. So Dan Kildare was born in Jamaica, but had moved to the USA by age six. By 22, he was already a musical conductor for one of the largest summer park shows touring the East Coast. And by 30, he was a cabaret player and an associate of James Reese Europe, the band leader will be devoting an entire upcoming episode to. By 1914, he was leading the Persian Garden Orchestra for famed exhibition dancer Joan Sawyer. She was uh, kind of a competitor to Irene and Vernon Castle. And Kildare may have been the first African-American band leader that moved his band permanently to Europe, something that happened quite a bit more frequently over the years. And at the end of this episode, we're going to be talking about the band he had briefly in 1918, a band called Dan and Harvey's Jazz Band, before we get to them, we're going to talk a little bit more about Serio's Club. But before we do that, let's hear one of the songs that Dan and Harvey's jazz band made in 1918, a song called Missouri Waltz. Thank you. 
So as I mentioned, we're going to delve further into the story of Ciro's orchestra, and it starts with Ciro's itself. The club was operated for rich people, people who could still afford to go out even though there was a war on. And it opened on April 18, 1915, to a party for 600 of London's most famous people. And the original band was Dan Kildare's. The Daily Telegraph described the band as, Mr. Dan Kildare's colored orchestra from the Clef Club, New York, was in attendance, and the selections which it provided were greatly enjoyed. Town Topics said, The Negro band made music which is rather remarkable in its way, for it consists of the newest ragtime and foxtrot melodies, with a central African feeling for the tom-tom and other instruments of percussion running through it all. By 1916, the club had more than 2,200 members, and the original hours were from noon to 5 a.m., although it was later pushed back a little bit to 2 a.m. The band stayed at Zero's for two years, in addition to doing various private events. Eve, the gossip columnist for a society magazine called Tatler, described one of their society functions in 1915 as, Down at Coombe Court, Lady Ripon's been having open-air concerts for her convalescing soldiers ever since the weather got good enough, and the other day she had Ciro's black ragtime band to play for them. She's a Ciroite herself, you know. The men simply loved it, of course, shrieked the ragtime choruses, and reveled in the fearful din and encored everything, and altogether were a much more appreciative audience than the usual Ciro's ones, who are generally busy eating, of course. They even played events for various British royalty, including the Prince of Wales. One interesting article from the New York Age in 1915 said about the band, Kildare assumed the onerous duties of amusing the fastidious and high-class patrons of Ciro's. He has seven men in his aggregation, which is known as Dan Kildare's Clef Club Orchestra. They're making a big hit, and as Murray's and Ciro's are generally regarded as the leading establishments of their kind, the opinion prevails that other well-known cafes will soon adopt the policy of employing colored entertainers. The article went on to caution, It behooves every colored musician in England to be on his good behavior, for just as the producers of The Birth of a Nation are seeking to create a false impression in this country regarding the Negro, so are agencies for America at work abroad doing their utmost to sow the seeds of race hatred. Let the colored Americans in London show their loyalty to their race by being gentlemen at all times and in all places. If they pursue this policy, they will be rendering incalculable service to their people. I find this article fascinating for any number of reasons. I have to say, in reading about this time period in this band, virtually every quote I found from English people at this time was incredibly offensive. I, I picked out the ones that had the least racist language to them, both from journalists and from the police as investigations in the club happened and the name given to the recording version of the band itself. The horribly racist name I mentioned in this episode and in the previous one was apparently the choice of Columbia Records. The band were not called that at their club. They were referred to a variety of different ways. Dan Kildare's Clef Club Orchestra, Dan Kildare's Orchestra, Ciro's Club Orchestra, Ciro's Sextet, all kinds of ways, but none of them were the way that Columbia had them record. At any rate, by 1916, public opinion had turned sour on the clubs that were still open during the war, the police raided the place, charges were filed over liquor licenses and improper behavior, and by April of 1917, a law was passed that didn't allow troops to attend, which basically cut out all of their business, and so the club closed. Uh, the band kept playing and toured Britain as a group called the Seven Spades. Dan Kildare didn't join that band, though, and uh, after a few final recordings with Ciro's orchestra, he switched to a new group. He partnered with one of the members of the band, a guy named Harvey White, to start Dan and Harvey's jazz band. Their first known engagement was at London's Shoreditch Empire Theatre in November, and a review commented, Dan and Harvey, two colored artists in an act new to London, introducing singing, dancing, piano, and trap drum, made an immediate hit. 
Dan is a pianist of more than the usual ability, who can play ragtime as skillfully as he can a good classical selection. Harry has a good baritone voice, can dance in first-rate style, and manipulate the trap drum without making too much noise. With just a little more briskness infused into the show, the boys should have a busy time in store. Uh, by January 1920, Ciro's had actually reopened, and Kildare was once again leading the band. But by June of that year, he committed the crimes I mentioned previously, and uh, that's the end of the story. Let's hear one more song by Dan and Harvey's jazz band before we leave them. This one's called Allah's Holiday. That's about it for 1918, but before we go, I'm going to tease you with one group who recorded a lot more in 1919, but did record for the first time this year. And the group featured Alcide Nunez, who you might remember was the original clarinetist for the original Dixieland Jazz Band. The group was called the Louisiana Five, and they were the second New Orleans ensemble to make a jazz record. They entered the studio only a few months after the original Dixieland Jazz Band. And we're going to hear their song, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next time. You can follow along with the show on Twitter at Jazz History Pod, or check out the website at ahistoryofjazz.com. Every episode, I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we heard. You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Tiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show.